Hey everyone, this is Sahim back with another episode of That's a Bug, a show where we talk about one software bug every episode. So recently I ran into an article in the New York Times where the headline read, Another arrest and jail time due to a bad facial recognition match. A New Jersey man was accused of shoplifting and trying to hit an officer with a car. He's the third known black man to be wrongfully arrested based on face recognition. So I started thinking about the software usage behind this terrible situation. As you may already know, many jurisdictions are talking about banning facial recognition usage. And also John Oliver has covered facial recognition on his show quite well. So I decided to talk to, about, talk to four different people for this episode. The people I talked to are uh, Abhimanyu Grover, a co-founder of Tesco Lab, uh, which is a testing software. He's also uh, part of a new startup called Game B Ventures that he's starting up. But he's also an AI enthusiast, which is why I decided to talk to him. Also talk to Brad Arsenault of Koala.io, that's K-W-O-L-A dot I-O, which is an AI front-end testing tool that finds, records, and logs your website errors. And I also talked to James Stewart, founder of AI, uh, which was acquired by Patriot One. AI was an automated video surveillance uh, software as a service system uh, that it uses AI. James also has a background in policing as he's a former crime analyst and of course, Nat, uh, for those that may not know, Nat works for Patriot One uh, in the testing space here. So these are all uh, people that have uh, a unique perspective on this uh, particular issue. So I asked James what he thought about this issue. I Yeah, of course, this is a very interesting example for me. Uh, we've been watching facial recognition for quite some time now. And as you're probably aware, facial recognition is actually being banned um, across many areas, especially in the U.S. A lot of research into AI, you run into people that, you know, some would say you shouldn't even be working on such a problem. Um, you know, e even in, in my previous um, company that we built, we were automating video surveillance and we did that for early detection of guns and fights. Um, and that was inspired by the parliament attacks of 2014, where we lost uh, one of our Canadian soldiers that was standing on guard. So my thought on technology like that is you're not going to stop the technology. It's, 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 it's going to come. So it's best to be, out front and leading on the, the the correct usage of such technology. So in the case of facial recognition and, and what those folks were using Clearview for, um, I didn't I didn't really see that as a technology issue, more of a operational usage of the technology. So it's it's almost the same as you would never, you know, if, if there was a crime and you had a victim, you would never show that victim a photo of somebody and say, was this the person? It, you just can't do that. And it's, it's not what police do. They have to present photos in a lineup that's, that's unbiased. So I think with, with AI, we're in sort of new space where we're adopting technology. Whenever technology can 
influence decisions. We have to be very careful. So as James says, this space is relatively early. So here's Abhimanyu talking about that. So the way I see AI is it's very early phase of AI we are going through right now. Uh, think of it like as early phase of pharma where you have all these sort of full uh, uh, industries full of all snake oils, magic potions and untested cures. There's no regulation around. So I think we are that with AI right now. And there's actually an uh, interesting paper by uh, some guy from Microsoft, I think, Luke, uh, Luke Stark, yeah. He calls it the facial recognition uh, tech, especially. He calls it plutonium of AI, which I think is pretty exaggerated, but he's very close. Like, it's, it's kind of dangerous, to say the least. So I talked to Brad and then Nat about how to test these systems. Um, well, th- I can tell you what the the most kind of dominant established approach is. And I've thought about this a lot. And I mean, testing almost all artificial intelligence models come down to one of two things. Um, uh, you're either measuring it against some ground truth data set and it's not, it's never true or false. It's, it's a percentage good uh, like how how good is it out of a hundred percent, or how many right answers does it get? Um, or you you're coming up with some benchmark or heuristic or or some number that kind of in, in the abstract, you know, as it gets higher, that's like loosely correlated with the outcome you want. Like in reinforcement learning, um, it's it we don't really have a ground truth, but we we have this kind of idea notion of a reward that goes up, and we kind of use that to um get it and it can be very difficult sometimes you know you might be you might be in a situation where you, your your neural network and on all your code is is working uh in the sense that all of the calculations are being performed the way that you thought them to but your neural network still doesn't work because you know you might have just some error in your math and so t- testing neural networks it's more of like a statistical phenomenon. Like you, you never expect them to be a hundred percent accurate in all situations. Yeah, and we we use quite a bit of AI um, where I work, and it, it is a tricky thing because, especially when you're evaluating, like in this case, you're evaluating images, and so you know, even when it's working well under perfect conditions, it, you know, you you might be reaching the threshold or minimum threshold. Let's say you say, if you have a 65% match on that particular uh, type of object, that's good enough. And then the system will create an alert and say, okay, yeah, that, that, that's close enough for us in this particular instance. When you're identifying a person, you need to be pretty darn accurate. And then as soon as you deal with kind of inaccurate lighting or the inherent biases, even with the camera tech or, you know, or distance from camera or an angle that's a little off. Like these things are, are terrible. Like even under perfect conditions, um, it's, you know, you, you can use the information, but it should just, there should still be a person probably evaluating the end result um, for something like this. Like it's, it's crazy that they took the result and they just said straight to jail. And then <laughs> like, that blows my mind. Yeah, the reality is it just seems like it's just lazy, lazy police work or something of that sort that 
probably what happened. My my understanding is that from from what you guys are saying is that anytime you get a result here, uh, for especially for something like this, it needs that secondary human uh, verification there for something like that. I think depending on the context, yeah. And I mean, I, this what's bizarre here too is that you're. The, this technology, like if you ask the someone at Clearview or a technologist, they're going to tell you all of the the inherent flaws and biases that are, are baked into this product, and they might not even be aware of all of them. Uh, but in this particular case, technologists are well aware that it doesn't do as well on um, the darker your skin, um, the the lower the performance or the lower the confidence uh, levels of these systems is. Um, and I think they, I think the, what was that? It was a gender shades study showed that dark skinned women, I think, um, were the least recognizable by these systems. And so as you move closer to the white end of the scale, it does better. And, you know, uh, the, the police are probably not conscious of that. They just say, oh, it works great in all these circumstances and you know they probably treat it as one equal performing system across the board right whether it's gender skin tone whatever they just say oh well the vendor takes responsibility for that we'll rely on it 100 percent um and so i think when you remove it from the technologists and put it in the hands of you know layman users they don't necessarily understand the weaknesses of the system or the you know where it doesn't perform as well they're kind of they have a blind spot there right so that makes it worse i think yeah and it it brings up the notion of um like even when you have those numbers it's not easy to communicate what that really means to people like people kind of they can sort of intuitively get like what does 96 percent accuracy mean but if you pull in what's a false positive what's a false negative like try to get anywhere more nuanced than that um than that high level accuracy number um people just don't follow like a regular user just just doesn't get it like it um, and it, it's even, it's hard for doctors to understand like, you know, sensitivity and specificity in medical tests. And like, some of them claim it's like very hard for them and they don't really, you know, they just kind of rely on other people's judgments there. Um, we have the same problem in machine learning, um, that it's hard to communicate that, uh, those numbers in a way that people can interpret. And then the, the, the numbers are not always accurate. That's a whole nother <laughs> Actually, that's the thing I was going to ask that numbers not being accurate is the, is the part that scares me here. Right. So if now let's say this person got arrested and it said something like 97% accuracy and it's the wrong person as a layman, like if you look at it and you think it's 97% accuracy, it's most likely this person. And so it causes some ethical concerns, right? So do, should we use something like this? Um, for like actually should we use facial recognition at all at this point uh it's well i i think it it, there's a responsibility on companies to build good testing mechanisms and you know i i've um i've fallen victim to that before myself because building a data set that is unbiased is actually pretty challenging um say for example you wanted to build um 
a, a data set that's like equally balanced across all different races. Um, and you, you know, you go outside and you start walking down your street and photographing people. This, this is a hypothetical, I guess you wouldn't really do that, but, um, <laughs> it, it's not intuitive to me at all that you would get like some perfect, that your specific street would have like, you know, 25% black people, 25% white, you know, 25% Indian, 25%. That's not the only races there are, but you know what I mean? Like it, it wouldn't be it's hard to even construct that balanced data set. Like, so, I mean, if you scrape everything like on the United States, like English speaking, uh, internet, um, you know, you're going to get 90% white people, you know, 8% black people, a few Asians tossed in like, because that's the data set like that, that is what, and then it, you then use that to measure against, well, of course it's going to give you a biased result. Your, your data set, was unbalanced in the first place you know what i mean and so um i feel like companies like this especially with facial recognition they need to publish those numbers but they also they need to really put a lot of effort in it is not a small job to construct a, a suitable testing data set that you could to, to even measure how good these algorithms are there's so many there's so many factors that can bias your data set or your your measurement yeah, and I, I wonder they they probably they were probably fairly comfortable with the way the tech had been working in in the you know the years prior. Um, you know, if you get you know ninety ninety hits that are you know correct identifications of people in the database. Oh, okay, this 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 system identified this criminal is already in our database. We had good matches um they start to trust the system and it sounds like this may have been and this might just be you know happening more frequently than we think um as well but you know this might be an outlier for that system this particular individual just happened to look a lot like um the this particular criminal or person who committed a crime and the way that the system looked at the features of the face it matched it happened to match up um, it might be a total fluke, um, but there's a reason why I, you know, I think if you look at the, there's a lot of, there's a movements to remove uh, facial rec from a lot of technologies out there. This is in the States in Europe, it's in, you know, they're, they're fighting uh, political battles to, to try to get it removed for, for reasons of privacy and because the tech isn't quite uh, there and we have a number of uh, staff that are vehemently against embedding any kind of facial rec in our in our systems. We do, you know, we identify threats and we we track um, we track threats through. Um, so if it sees a gun, but we we focus first on the object, not necessarily on the person. We don't do any facial rec. We say, okay, these are some identifying features within a person and oh, okay it looks like when they move from this camera to this one to that one it looks like the same person and we you know we track people through camera frames uh, as they move through a facility and stuff like that but again just to, to go up and match a, a facial frame on surveillance cameras that have terrible resolution often are far from people you know you'd, you'd be hard pressed to to do that you, you know We've got a number of staff that are just like, no, we're not going down that road. Um, and if if we did happen to do that, they'd probably leave. Yeah, 
Yeah. About the fact that you mentioned that the person may have looked alike, he the in the article I read, the person said that there was nothing alike about him, other than the fact that they both were the same race. They both black, and they both had beards. Those were the, those was the only thing that was similar oh, amongst wow. the two people. So, um, so which yeah. which makes this uh, even more scary to me. Um, and it's but that's the reason, right? So. For using AI and facial recognition both together here um, as a software technologist here, we want to figure out how to be how to be ethical here. Yeah. Right? So he brings I, I want to build on a, a point that he made there, which was um, that there's a certain degree of complacency, like when the system is like pretty good but not perfect that people build in. Like say someone's selling you a facial recognition algorithm and you you claim, oh, it's it's greater than 99% accurate. Like you're gonna it sounds pretty good. Like, you know, like just off the shelf, you're like, oh, 99%. Like that's what I would expect from a pretty good facial recognition system. But actually, I mean, that if if you're going around a lot of police work and you're filing hundreds of claims a day, well, that means it's making like a misleading judgment on someone several times a day within that police department because they're just running so many facial recognition scans. Um, and if you say you have like 10 or 15 different kind of half fuzzy shots of the particular victim, like, well, any one of those 15 now have a chance of, you know, mismatching to someone. And so that 1% error rate now magnifies and like there's now potentially a five or a 10% chance that this person is going to be mis misidentified. So like that, that standard, it, it has to be really high. Like we, we you know, 99% in a way is not even good enough for facial recognition of this type. Just, you know, when justice says, is at play, you know, we have to hold things to an even almost a, a million and one, chance that it's wrong kind of failure rate but like no machine learning person can ever get to that high yeah very high so i i had actually also talked to uh abumani grover of another company called test collab uh, makes testing software so they he mentioned he's it's not an ai company but he's really into ai and one thing he suggested was to treat ai like this kind of like with the certifications or some type of government oversight or maybe not government, but a third party oversight, kind of like how, I mean, we're in COVID time. So there's vaccines is example he used where right now it, there is certain level of um, like certifications you got to go through to get to the next step. So what about something like that? What do you guys think about that? For facial recognition, I think it makes sense. Um, in fact, for probably for a bunch of different types of technology, that especially if they're being used in key key areas like law enforcement or taxes or you know social justice type areas. Um, now, I I think actually implementing that is going to be very difficult. I know people within the machine learning industry they have a high degree of just like just trust me, you know. It's like you know, I'm building this model, it optimizes for something you want, like it, you know, it's, for, you know, it's trying to show you social media posts you care about, it's trying to show you like, I'm doing, like, they kind of have this attitude, it's like, I'm doing my best job, like, just leave me alone and allow me, like, I understand this more than you do, you know what I mean? So I think it's gonna, it's gonna be hard to shift that kind of mindset. Um, engineers, 
kind of lean towards like leave me alone don't regulate me and um implementing rules like that i just think will be very challenging and it's not clear what what rule you would actually put in it's kind of fundamental to the technology some of these challenges yeah i wonder um i mean if you look at the vaccine problem specifically they put it through a clinical trial so the equivalent of that would be kind of the the beta t- real world beta test for a while i don't in the wild i wonder how that you, you need a lot of people to consent to it which can you get that i'm not sure um but i i mean i think you i don't think you're going to apply to all ai you might force something like facial rec where it's um used in a lot of different ways but um and, and the stakes tend to be high i just wonder yeah i i don't know that we'd ever get there and and i don't know if it's the engineers pushing back on it that's causing that or just the public just not wanting to take part in in that type of shenanigan and it would have to every company would have to certify to it so maybe maybe you've got some global entity that collects a whole bunch of information you know a million participants uh, you know an ideal data set but i think what will end up happening is it will be hard and then now with the deep fake stuff like um i don't know i don't i i i just think we we need we need to shy away like steer away from certain technologies i think some just are not a good idea to implement and, and that needs to be regulated more than you know how do we get to 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 make this tech work 100% of the time because uh, i think it's more likely that we just regulate certain areas entirely and just say look we're not going to we're not it's not okay to live with that technology in place um and and rule it out um Abhiman, you talked about some potential solutions for this complex problem, and here he is. Yeah, so let's let's talk about uh, potential solutions. And I don't like all all the solutions that uh, I have researched on, but let's let's see what you like and what do you think of. What do you think of them? So first, I I basically briefly touched upon that is regulation. We need. I don't like regulation, but I think with AI we need some sort of uh central regulation before before ai is pushed to production and people just start using it using it as uh their daily lives yeah the yeah it's going to be tricky though because uh, uh regulating a software which you see and interact with is different but uh, interactions with ai algorithm is completely different it's, it takes ai is sitting inside your uh, application that you're using you don't see it you don't interact to it directly in some cases you do but in most cases you don't know there is something going on and you don't know where when the output is coming from the program or human and uh, another solution is uh, related to qa we actually did a webinar on uh, what the future of qa might be when ai uh, when we'll see more and more ai startups and this one is interesting because uh, i think the future of qa or uh, how we'll do qa in the in future when ai is ai as ai becomes more sophisticated i think qas would be more 
invested into testing ethics more than functionality or something like that. So I'm thinking the new new generation of testers would be more connected to humans, more more uh, they'll have more empathy, they'll see what uh, potential, what what damaging uh, what I mean what potential damages it can cause. Uh, and where where the AI should be used should not be used, and when when we are trading efficiency with uh, doing the right thing, I mean it's it's going to be very it's it's hard to predict what it's going to be like, but we definitely need to have some sort of uh, whole reorganized uh, concept of quality assurance around AI. Yeah, another would be to just be less reliant on such system seeing uh, any output generated by AI like that with some sort of skepticism and making sure double double checking the output. Like in this case where, where this happened, uh, this where the, the man was arrested, yeah. So uh, in, in that case, only thing common was Baird, he said. And uh, and he, he said he didn't even look like the guy they identified him as. So if if you have some if you have some human involvement in a process like that, it would never. I mean, you would you would uh, not have so many large number of feathers. And I think this was like fourth or fifth con, uh, false accusation. But the but the biggest one is being done by Microsoft, and that's uh, DCAI. It's called decentralized and collaborative AI. So uh, instead of uh, centralization, centralized uh, company doing your AI work, producing output or uh, making decisions on uh, on government's behalf, you have decentralized nodes that are taking part in a network and they are deciding whether uh, what to label something as or uh, like what the right answer is. So at the core of core of it is AI is uh, uh, just putting either it's putting label on things or it's uh, binary yes or no. It can be like this. All algorithms basically fall into classifier and labeler something like that. So with approach with DC AI is that what Microsoft is doing is that if we can form a blockchain type of uh, network like a decentralized network and all nodes are taking part. Everybody has their own uh, different algorithms to, let's say, to recognize face or uh, something as simple as flower recognition. And they they uh, they all receive inputs and they collaborate. Okay, this is the output, say five, five out of uh, seven nodes say that A is the answer and other two are saying B. So you have now, instead of one centralized output, you have seven different to compare it with. So that way you have uh, basically democratization of AI output and you can make your decisions more wisely. So that's that's the whole, uh, how, how the decentralized networks are, uh, networks are configured. Your right facts are rewarded and in a, in a crowdsourced marketplace. So fact checking is more easy. Brad introduced us to this concept of adversarial AI, where AI is susceptible to hacking, which could lead to very dangerous outcomes. It turns out that James Stewart started a company called Troja AI, which has been 
created to deal with this issue. Here's James explaining to us what adversarial AI is, and it's quite fascinating. I guess the first step is to actually uh, socialize the message that that AI is is at risk first, um, and it's it's a problem that's sort of more widely known in in academia. Uh, to date, there's been like 2,500 papers written on adversarial attacks, but there's very few examples in the industry of um, of commercially uh, available tools to actually help a company um, be less susceptible to to attack. So, so adversarial AI is basically the hacking of your artificial intelligence to influence behavior in in either untargeted or targeted way. So I'll give an example. If, if you had a medical medical um, detection device that's automating the classification of skin lesions as, as benign or malignant, you could actually introduce just the right amount of noise into the image to flip the classification from one to the other. So let's say you had a doctor that wanted to engage in insurance fraud, they could introduce just the right amount of noise, flip the classification from benign to malignant, order a a battery of tests that are unnecessary, um, or or you know you, maybe you have a malicious actor that wants to. You know, just so havoc into a system, they could they could flip it the other way, so malignant to benign, and the you know the the device doesn't work as intended anymore, and you know you you could say state actors could target a a very large brand um, for competitive advantage, um, so that's that's sort of what adversarial AI is. It's it's an issue that's we we're seeing it pick up quite quickly because it, you know, we've already lived through, um, you know, the advent of the the internet and the World Wide Web and how all of those innovations in the early '90s were were coming out fast and most of them security wasn't wasn't really thought of at the time and we've been sort of filling those gaps ever since. We're at a similar inflection point with, with, with AI, where these these innovations are changing our world daily, but they're wide open right now. So it's, it's sort of a clear and present danger um, right now. And and I guess from a QA perspective, that again is super important for for companies to be aware that their models can be hacked so that, you know, imagine the executive of a software company, they have no way of even, even comprehending that this is a problem. And, and most companies are, are going as quickly as they can to innovate um, and, you know, make good on, on their products and to survive. 
And protecting a product is always a secondary thought anyway. So now you add this new, you know, attack vector that's not even known. Um, I think QA could could play a tremendous role in in protecting all of those innovations. Thank you for listening to That's a Bug. This has been one of our longer episodes. We'd love to keep the discussion going on our Facebook page. Just go on to Facebook and search for That's a Bug. <laughs>